Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. I'm going to read from verses 16 to 21. So, brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there will spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let me begin by asking you some questions. How often do you engage in a debate? When was the last time you had a good old-fashioned debate with someone or a friend co-worker during mealtime, instead of looking at your phone until the food comes. Now, when debates are done well in a friendly manner, it can be healthy for your mind because you get to learn new things about the other person. It doesn't mean you necessarily agree with everything that person says, but at least you are informed. You see, debate should not be so much of a heated argument or even trying to win a debate, but rather it should be a place to exchange ideas and arguments. And also be open to having your ideas challenged by your opponents, your friends, or maybe your enemies. Uh, Even learning how to defend and articulate your ideas to someone in a logical manner. And so we come to a text here, the passage in Acts, where the Apostle Paul evangelizes to the Athenians, and the Greek philosophers. And earlier in the chapter, we remember that Paul was kicked out of the city from Thessalonica and in Berea. And so after being, after being in Berea, the Christians sent him over by sea to Athens. And Silas and Timothy remain at, in, at Berea. But they're about to depart and go to Paul in Athens as soon as possible. And while Paul was waiting for his ministry partners, he was strolling in the city of Athens. Now, Athens is located at the southern part of Greece, and it's still around to this day. Paul arrived in the city he probably never visited before, and like any tourist, he was expecting to be impressed by this famous and historic city, which had been one of the the most glorious times in ages. One of the most, what they call the golden age, like 100 years ago before this time. And it was the golden age back in the 5th century. Now, why was it called the golden age? Because during that time, the arts and the philosophy and the politics flourished. 
and Athens became the center of learning and culture.、Uh, Greek philosopher Plato he actually founded the academy there, which was a famous school at that time. It's kind of like a university in Athens, and many people would want to travel there to Athens to be educated. And it was not until the second century BC when Athens was conquered by the Romans, but it still remained an intellectual and cultural center, with two predominant rival schools of philosophy: the Epicureans and the Stoics. And so when Paul visited the great city, he may have expected some beauty,、uh, some beauty to remain in Athens, but. As the text says in verse 16, that he was provoked by the magnitude of the idolatry he witnessed, and apparently, apparently there was a, there was a saying that at in Athens that there were about 30,000 idols, but only 10,000 people living in that city when Paul visited. So, in other words, there were more idols than people. You had the Athena's temple. You had the shrines. You had the city streets that were lined up with statues of men and gods, and you had the pillars mounted with heads of Hermes. And so Paul saw all of that, and he was provoked. He was provoked probably by anger, or maybe grief, or maybe even with a desire to see the Athenians here come to know Jesus because he had a deep concern for them. As they worship false idols, as they worship these unknown gods instead of the true and known God. Now, idolatry is just simply means worshiping anything other than the Lord God Himself, and it still remains a problem today. We often think of idolatry as bowing down to idols such as the Buddhist statues or the Hindu gods or other pagan worship. Or even this past week, I learned that in the Grammys award, there was some sort of something satanic happened there. So something not good right there. So, but the core idolatry, the heart of idolatry, means seeking satisfaction, even seeking a desire from anything other than God Himself, and or even just making someone or something more important than God. Money, for example, is not inherently an idol, but it can become one if it is worshipped in the heart as a source of happiness and satisfaction. See, idolatry can be very close to us and can take hold of us if we're not very careful with it. Now, going back to the text, Paul then reasoned. Verse seventeen. He reasoned and dialogued with many different folks from different places, and he reasoned with the Jews and the Gentile God-fearers in the synagogue first, as it was his custom, and then afterwards he also reasoned with many different people every day in the marketplace. And so it's quite possible that what Paul was doing was what we call street evangelism or open-air preaching. And even trying to tell as many people as possible about Jesus in a city full of idols. And when Paul was reasoning with people at the marketplace, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed and debated with him. 
They're the intellectuals of Athens. They're like the philosophy students on the university campus. Now, I don't want to dive too deep into the background of these two schools of philosophy because this is not an introduction to the history of ancient Greek philosophy. But it is important to know some of the beliefs of their worldview because their philosophy still have some influence on our modern world. The Epicureans believe that the pursuit of happiness through physical and mental pleasure and a peaceful life was the chief purpose of life. See, they, they avoided things that would cause pain or fear, especially the fear of death. They tried to avoid all of those things. Now with God, they believe in a God who created the world, but they believe that he did not want to involve himself in human affairs. So they saw no need to seek to seek him or even to worry about his judgment. It's kind of like the, the deists of our time, that God created the world and then just left it to be. The Stoics believe in a strong moral duty to cultivate reason and independence and saw life as a mixture of both good and bad. They strive to live a virtuous life and they strive to fulfill their duty, but they also accept that but they also accepted that pain and suffering were just unavoidable. And so they would just endure the pain, just take it in, while also trying to remain calm. And with God, they held to a pantheistic belief that God is present in all things. And so after, the, after hearing the description of these two school of thoughts, aren't they quite common in our pluralistic culture like Canada? You know, people try to find meaning, people try to find purpose in life through materialism, uh, individualism, secularism, humanism, all these isms going on, and then also other religions too. Similar to the marketplace in, in Athens, Vancouver is quite diverse with different beliefs and ideologies and worldviews. And so as Christians, we are challenged as we look at this text, we are challenged to learn how to evangelize in a pluralistic culture. And as Paul was conversing and debating with them, these philosophers did not seem to understand what Paul was talking about because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. However, the philosophers may have understood him to be talking about two different gods here. There's the Jesus, who's a male deity, and then there is the, the resurrection, which in Greek is pronounced as anastasis, in reference to a female deity. And hence, in their view, Jesus and anastasis were considered div foreign divinities to them. And they dismissed Paul for being a babbler uh, or someone who's speaking nonsense here. And so, the philosophers brought Paul to the place called the Areopagus. Uh, Areopagus was a court. It was situated on a hill, as you see in the photo here. And this hill was also known as Mars Hill. Uh, Areopagus remained an important meeting place to discuss uh, civil, criminal, uh, philosophical, and religious matters. And Paul was invited to speak before the court of these intellectuals uh, regarding his new ideas. Now, it was not a trial, 
but it was a general inquiry from these folks in the council because they want to learn more about this new teaching. And they wanted to understand what, the, what is the meaning behind it. And so as Luke comments in verse 21, they loved new ideas. And it's also been said in Athens uh, that in Athens, many people go to the city to just talk all day and even half a night about new ideas. Now for me, as an introvert, I cringe at, I, I cringe at that idea. I don't like to talk all day, but if you like to talk all day, you can go to Athens and, and talk. Uh, but they talk because it was, a new, it was for them to learn things, learn new ideas, and also to be educated in that way. Ironically, Paul's message about God is nothing new because he would borrow ideas from their poets and even the inscriptions uh, that they are aware of the idea of God, except this God is unknown to them. And so since Paul was invited to speak before the intellectuals at Areopagus, he seized that moment to tell them about the good news. And so with your Bible, let's continue our reading from verses 22 to 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human, God, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commanded all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul's here in this message. Paul's goal was to make this unknown God known to them. Ultimately, Paul wanted to point them to Jesus Christ. And so Paul began his message by establishing some sort of common ground in verses 22 to 23. He observed and perceived that they were very religious. As Paul was walking around Athens, he used an illustration to draw their attention to the message. And the illustration was the altar with this inscription to the unknown God. The Athenians should be aware of that inscription. They worship this God who is unknown. They didn't have a personal relationship with this God. 
And so to, to these philosophers, this God was impersonal. He was far away. And so this God was unknown to them. And it's a similar thing in our culture, isn't it? You have the agnostics who don't know or they're uncertain if there's a God or not. And having interacted with some of them in my life, they may say that even if there's an existence of God, they don't think that he can be known. For others, skeptics who want nothing to do with religion and Christianity, they may say that even if there's an existence of God, or even a higher power, a higher being, they don't think this God wants anything to do with them. But notice what Paul does here. He actually leverages that opportunity by saying to these philosophers, you acknowledge you don't know this God. You acknowledge that this God has nothing to do with you. But here, let me tell you about him. And so if you want to talk to non-believers about Jesus, you want to find a common ground or find a common point where you can tell them about God. Now, you may not know philosophy or maybe you don't know all the science, but you can still tell them about Jesus. You can still tell them about what you know about Jesus because you know something that they don't. And so in verses 24 to 25, Paul here is going to describe who this God is. That this God is the, is the sovereign creator. That he created the universe. That he created both heaven and earth. And furthermore, God created the world and humanity as a witness and testimony to his existence. When you look at the beauty of nature and creation, and even the complexity of our biology, there should be no denial that someone designed everything. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And also, since God created the world, he is not bound by man. He's not bound by a building, like the temple. And he doesn't need to be served by us as if he needed anything from us. God here, Paul is trying to say, is God is perfectly sufficient. God is perfectly independent apart from us. Solomon once said in verse Kings chapter 8, verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And so if you're trying to reach the skeptics, and maybe they don't believe in the existence of God, you could utilize this thing, this argument called the cosmological argument. Now, I don't have all the time to explain the argument behind it, but let me just try to describe this argument in three simple and short premises. So, premise number one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. For example, a paint exists because a painter drew it. A content on YouTube exists because a content creator made it. So it would make no logical sense whatsoever to assume that a paint or a content came out of nowhere. 
Second premise is that the universe that we are currently living in began to exist. And so therefore, the universe has a cause. It would make no logical sense whatsoever that the universe just randomly popped out of nowhere. And this cause must be a necessary being that exists outside of the universe. It is not dependent on anything else to exist. Now I can go for I can go on and talk more about this, but using this simple argument and with that kind of reasoning, hopefully you can shift your atheist friend or your agnostic friend to at least being a theist, meaning that they believe in the possibility that God does exist. And then once you do that, you can try to appeal to them that the God who created the world is the one Paul here is talking about. Now, while Paul doesn't directly quote the Bible to make his case for, the, for this known God, since his audience would not know the Old Testament, he does, however, allude and summarize the teachings and the ideas from the Old Testament to make this God knowable in a language that is accessible to them. Moving forward in verses 26 to 29, Paul proclaims that not only is the God is the sovereign creator, but he is also the sovereign ruler. Here, Paul alludes to Genesis chapter 1 to 2, whereby from one man he created every nation of mankind to live on earth. And I think Paul might have wanted him to understand that every human being came from the same family, ultimately from Adam and Eve. And that all men and women are made by God with equal value and dignity. And by saying that, it, this might have been a shocking statement to the Athenians because they would regard non-Greeks as barbarians. And here in verse 26, Paul says that this God, in his mysterious sovereignty, he determined mankind's dwelling place by placing them in allotted periods and, and, and boundaries. And this seems to suggest that God determined a period of time when people and nation would live and die. This also suggests, possibly, that God is the one who determines when a nation rises and when a nation falls. And this like, also suggests that God is ultimately the one who determined where you would live and which family you were born into. See, you're not the one who made that choice. It is stamped onto your birth certificate, and that would not change. You were born in this place and into this family. So God determined that Greeks would be Greeks, the Americans, Americans, Canadians, Canadians. Uh, God determined where you would live and where you would be born. And God determined that you would either be Asian or African or European. None of these things are accidents by design. God is actively involved in your life. And this idea from Paul counteracts the Epicurean's philosophy of deism, that God is not distant from humanity. He's close by. He is here. He is actively involved in this world and even in your life in a way that is mysterious to our finite minds. But for what purpose? What is the purpose of God's placement of every nation of mankind? 
Well, in verses 27 to 29, God has revealed himself so that we might seek him out. And according to Paul, there's a sense in which mankind has the responsibility to know and to seek after this God because of God's revelation in natural world. Now, in verse 27, this is a very odd verse because it says in verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now, this is a very difficult verse to interpret because this word was used by, the, by Greek poets that may have been well known to the Athenians. And so Paul borrows that word and that idea. It actually car- In the Greek, it actually carries a neg- negative connotation of a blind person uh, walking in the dark and trying to look for something in an uncertain way. So Paul seems to be suggesting or describing humans seeking God in their own imperfect way in the hope that they might get a hold of God if only that were possible. And that's because God is actually not far from each one of us. God is not far from each one of us. God is here. God is omnipotent. He is here with us right now. And that the text in Psalm says that the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And by drawing the quotes from the poets, Paul was actually critiquing them of the absurdity of idolatry. See, how is it possible for us to live and to move and to have our being in an inanimate object made out of gold, silver, and stone? You see, since we came from God, we are God's offspring, we came from God and we are made in his image, since that is true, we should not think of God as an idol, but a being, a living being. We're not to think of him as an idol who was created by an art and imagination of man. Instead, instead of worshiping as an idol, it is every person's moral obligation to seek after this God because he is our creator. And if you don't know this Jesus this morning, then know that God created you so that you can know him personally. You can come to Jesus by faith because without faith, it is impossible to please him. And for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek after him. And lastly, Paul here in verses 30 to 31, he proclaims that God is the sovereign judge. You see, knowing that God is the sovereign creator, knowing that God is the sovereign ruler of this universe, God exhorts the Athenians, these intellects, these intellectuals, to respond to the message. How? By repentance. By repentance, turning away, changing of mind. And why are they to repent? Three simple reasons. First, they're to repent because of God's patience. Paul talks about the times of ignorance God overlooked. Now, this doesn't mean that God overlooked human sins who were not exposed to the Bible. This doesn't mean that sinners aren't guilty of their sins because they had, they had the natural revelation. They had nature to tell them that God exists. And only that, in Romans chapter 2, it talks about how God has put in all of us a conscience to know 
what is right and wrong. There was, in a sense, that complete Gentiles, non-Jews, they were ignorant, and that they did not know God's special revelation, the gospel, the Bible, that he gave to the Israelites. And after the flood, God in his patience, he did not judge the world as it truly deserves. He did, however, judge nations surrounding Israel, and furthermore, he did judge his own people for their own sins. But now that the gospel is going forth, there will be a day when God will judge the whole wide world. That time of ignorance will pass. Why is that? Because the Christian message has spread to the ends of the earth. And this is especially true as you are living in Canada, where there are churches, there are Christians, and there are Bibles available. And know that if this morning you don't know Christ, as you have heard the message of God's word many times on this pulpit, you have, not, you have no excuse for not knowing who this God is and that he calls you to respond to him, to turn from your sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus. So first, they're to repent because of God's patience. Second, they're to repent because of God's commandment. God commands everywhere, all people everywhere to repent, to turn away from sin, to change their mind. And so for the Athenians, they're to turn away from their false understanding of this unknown God and to now to seek and to believe in this known God. Third, they're to repent because of God's appointed day of judgment. How about that? The Apostle Paul is preaching repentance before the Athenians, and he's also talking about the day of judgment. And on that judgment day, God has appointed a man to judge the world in righteousness. And Paul says that we can know for this for certain because God raised him from the dead. And who is that man that was raised from the dead? Paul doesn't say it here. But I'm sure that he's about to tell them about this Jesus. And even after 2,000 years, living in this modern world, we are still living in a world like Athens in need of the same message of repentance and judgment. And now I strongly believe that Paul would have wanted to say more about Jesus here in verse 31. Paul was just getting warmed up here. He was ready to explain the good news to them, I think. It wouldn't make no sense for Paul to suddenly end at verse 31 and not continue. But what happened? Well, look at verse, verses 32 to 34. It says, Now when they heard the, of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so again, as I said, Paul, it seems like Paul did not get the opportunity to continue his message and introduce the person and work of Jesus before some started to interrupt and mock the message. I'm glad it doesn't happen here when I'm preaching. But what did they mock about and Why? They mock at the idea of the resurrection of the dead. This idea was, was foreign to Greek thoughts 
even though they seem to be open to new ideas here. See, for the Greeks, they believed that the soul was immortal, but they did not believe in the resurrection of the body. They thought that anything uh, physical was evil and that, and that anything spiritual was good. And so they did not believe that the body, the physical body, could be glorified. And that's why when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he had to teach and explain the doctrine of the resurrection because some, some in the church of Corinth denied the resurrection of the dead. And plus, if you know anything about Corinth, it was it's a Greek city. So I'm sure some of the folks in, the, in that church was influ, were, were influenced by Greek thoughts. And Paul said that to deny the resurrection was a serious heresy because it's an attack on the gospel whereby Christ was raised from the dead. And Paul said in that passage that without the resurrection of the dead, our Christian faith is futile. Now, brothers and sisters, know that some parts of the gospel message will become a stumbling block for those whom you're trying to reach. For the Athenians, it would have been the resurrection. For the proud, they don't want to know that they're sinners. For those with other religious beliefs, they don't want to hear Jesus is exclusively the only way to the Father. For the moralists, they don't want to believe that they cannot contribute to their salvation by their good deeds and works. They don't want to believe that salvation is all of grace and none of our works. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And so know that some will jeer at the Christian message and object it. And perhaps there might be some of you like that in the sanctuary that mock and ridicule what I say. Now, you may not say it out loud, but that may be your response in your heart. Like, who, what is this guy saying? It's so ridiculous to my worldview. But know that you will be held accountable before a holy and righteous God for how you respond to this message. However, others seem more charitable and said to Paul, we will hear, we will hear you again about this. So they seem to be open-minded, but they're not fully persuaded yet. Maybe it's just another way of them saying, I'll decide later. However, they'll never get to hear Paul again because he's going to leave Athens and move on to Corinth in the next chapter. And so Paul left Areopagus, but by the grace of God, he was able to convince some of the philosophers of the court to believe. There was Dionysius, and Damaris, they were named. There were others, perhaps at least two. However, they're unknown for the rest of the scripture. And it is uncertain if a church was established at, at Athens after this event, because Paul usually does that in the previous churches. But the church was certainly planted right after Athens. And in some of my readings, some of the commentaries that I've read, some have suggested that Paul's ministry at Athens was a failure. They criticized Paul, Paul's message of being too philosophical and that it did not contain the message of the atonement of Jesus, him dying on the cross. 
Therefore, he did not win people for Christ because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And it seems like there's a case to be made here for, as Paul did write in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, perhaps after reflecting upon his evangelistic effort at Athens, he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so when Paul arrives at Corinth in the next chapter, it seems like he abandoned philosophy, he changed his approach, and he continued preaching Christ. Now, perhaps those who critique Paul might be onto something. However, I do think that, that those criticisms were, un, were not warranted. We must keep in mind that Paul did not abandon his duty in preaching Christ and the gospel. He was reasoning from the scriptures, and he was preaching the gospel to the people in the Jewish synagogue and even in the marketplace. In the marketplace. When Paul was speaking to the philosophers, he was alluding to the scriptures without the need to quote it. He spoke and summarized the message in a way that they could understand. And, so being, and being put in a situation before the intellectuals, I'm certain that Paul did his best and God still used it to save a few. And so like Paul, it is a challenge. It is a challenge to evangelize to the intellectuals and even to people from all walks of life in this pluralistic culture. But we do our best to find that common point with people as a way to lead into a spiritual conversation and tell them about Jesus and try to be faithful in sharing the gospel with them. And we shouldn't be disheartened. We shouldn't be disheartened when people don't believe, when people reject our message. Quite frankly, there will always be some who mock Christianity, mock Jesus, and mock the gospel. But there will always be some who are open-minded to hear about Jesus again in the future. But sometimes they'll never get a chance to hear it again. But God in his mercy will still use our weakness to save some. And it's not based on our eloquence. It's not based on how smart we are. It is based on how powerful and mighty this God that we worship because he is willing to save. He is mighty to save including the smartest people of our day. And so we hope in him, we trust him, and leave the result up to him as we continue in our endeavor to spread the gospel to everywhere, to all people, regardless of who they are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for challenging us. It is not easy to evangelize to people who are intellectuals. And certainly there are many of those in our day. Lord, we want to be humble and know that we are frail and 
and that we are not always uh, the, the brightest, perhaps. But we do have the gospel, and that is enough. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Lord, help us not to be fearful, but to be courageous and brave in telling others about Christ. And even when we don't convince some, Lord, we remember that the power to save does not come from us. We're not the one who will convert people, but that you're the one who will transform lives with the simple message of, the, of Jesus. So, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful in declaring who this God that we worship, that, God, you're the creator, that, God, you're the ruler, and that, God, you're also the righteous judge. And I'm sure, Lord, that Paul would have wanted to tell them about the love of God as well and how, God, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and to be raised on the third day. And I'm sure that Paul would have wanted to tell them about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure that God, he would have wanted to tell them about how God is patient with them and that they are to turn away from sin. And so similarly for us, help us to be faithful in telling, telling others about who you are as revealed in their scriptures. And I ask that We do so not by our own strength, but we do so by the power of the Spirit who is in us. So be with us and encourage us. And if there are those who don't know Christ, Lord, they have a responsibility to seek after you, to know you. And this is an opportunity for them to turn to Christ for salvation, to confess their sins to you, to turn away from sin, and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive eternal life. So Lord, work in, those, work in them, work in their hearts. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.